welcome to this Hardwick podcast. My name's James Hall. I'm joined by my colleague Tom Bell, and in this podcast, we'll be discussing the topic of recent changes to the Financial Ombudsman Service. So James, why don't you begin by giving us an overview of uh, what you're going to be talking about? Uh, I'll start the podcast by talking about what the changes to FOS's powers and jurisdictions actually are, and then I think you're going to deal with the next part, Tom. I'm going to then move on to talk about what the implications of those changes are for complainants, respondents and the FOSS itself. I think you're then going to conclude by talking about... Uh, Some proposals from a body called UK Finance, which are linked to, in many ways, the changes to FOSS, so we thought we should cover those off in this podcast as well. So before we move on to the changes, why don't you just tell us a bit about um, the FOSS and uh, the nature of the FOSS as a dispute resolution body? Well... Tom, FOS uh, employs actually 4,500 people, so it's a pretty massive organisation. It's thought to be the largest organisation of its kind in the world. Uh, And according to an article in the Financial Times in January of this year, it's expected to handle about 150,000 complaints. Uh, Their source for that was the chief executive of FOS itself. Um, The way in which uh, the customer of a financial services firm gets to FOS is that they first of all have to exhaust any complaint avenues they may have with that firm and once they've exhausted those avenues they can bring a complaint to FOS itself. So once they bring a complaint to FOS what's the process then? So it's initially dealt with by someone called an adjudicator um, who investigates the complaint, uh, takes soundings from both sides, asks for documents and so on and then comes to a provisional view, provides a report uh, which is sent to the parties uh, for them to see if they can agree on it, on the outcome of the complaint. But if that isn't agreed to by the parties, then the matter is referred to an ombudsman themselves. So there's actually more than one ombudsman. It's not simply one financial ombudsman. There are many ombudsmen and women. And it's right, isn't it, that um, the ombudsman or the adjudicator, as the case may be, they don't have to necessarily apply the law. Um, the test for an ombudsman complaint is um, what is, in the opinion of the Ombudsman, fair and reasonable in all the circumstances of the case. And that's something which we're going to look at by reference to the new changes in due course. But I think it's important to keep that in mind, isn't it? It is. So uh, if you want to find the rules that govern uh, the FOS process, you need to look in the FCA handbook in the DISP section. Uh, The point that you've just made about the test that they apply is DISP 3.6.1, other key points are that it's generally a paper process. Although ombudsmen and women can hold hearings, they generally don't do so. Uh, it's also the case that their determination is only binding if it's accepted by the complainant, for example. So if the complainant doesn't accept it, then they're not bound by it, but the converse isn't true. The respondent is bound by it if the complainant says so. That's correct. It's a one-way binding process the complainants uh, can disregard the determination and go off to court and have another go if they like and, and what about costs are they recoverable in the FOS? generally speaking no um, certainly the respondent can't recover its costs uh, generally a cost award won't be made in favor of the complaint either but in exceptional circumstances that can happen so it's a slightly one-way process there as well right so You're going to talk about what the big changes that have been made to the FOSS, um, what those changes are. But before you do so, why don't you just outline what prompted those changes to be made? Sure. So um, the changes really, 
they come from a number of directions, but one of the biggest drivers uh, is unhappiness in the small business community and indeed amongst um, MPs in Parliament whose constituents include those small businesses, uh, in particular in relation to allegations of uh, mis-selling of financial products. So this arises out of, really out of the recession, the credit crunch and so on from 2008 onwards, uh, when it came to light that many small businesses have been sold interest rate hedging products, uh, swaps, tailored business loans and similar products that when interest rates fell drastically were very disadvantageous to them and which many businesses would say they were pressured by banks and others into entering into. And so there was unhappiness in the business community and in Parliament. Um, What then was the process which led to the rules coming into place? So the FCA responded to this by publishing a consultation paper in January 2018 on SME access to the Financial Ombudsman Service. If you want to look at that, the reference for that is CP18-3, and that then resulted uh, in a process of consultation up until December 2018, but in October 2018, they published their policy statement reference PS18-21, um, called SME Access to the Financial Ombudsman Service Near Final Rules. And am I right in thinking that although there was a fairly extensive response to the consultation, that the rules that the FCA originally drafted, I think with one exception, went through unchanged into the final rules that are now enforced? Yeah, so those changes came in in, 20, uh, in April 2019. So why don't you now... Um, outline what the uh, new rules are but I think before you do that there's an important point to make isn't there about the timing of of a complaint. Yeah so one has to bear in mind a distinction to be made uh, when looking at the rules as amended between uh, acts and omissions by regulated financial services firms that occurred before the 1st of April 2019 on the one hand and those which occurred um, after April 2019 on the other that um, affects both the uh, award powers that FOS has and the eligible complainants. Okay, so let's assume we have a act or omission that took place before the 1st of April 2019. Um, broadly speaking, what are the limits of the FOS's powers uh, for those acts and omissions? In that scenario, um, if the complaint was referred to FOS prior to the 1st of April 2019, then FOS's uh, maximum award limit was £150,000. That went up from £100,000 in 2012. It should be noted that's the limit of the binding award. The FOS uh, adjudicator or ombudsman can award more than that, but the respondent firm doesn't have to pay anything above the £150,000. Now, on the 1st of April, um, for acts and omissions prior to that date, but for complaints referred after that date, the award limit went up to £160,000, so a broadly inflationary rise since the previous change in 2012. And is it right that the increase in 2012 from 100 to 150000 that was intended to be inflationary rather than a policy change? I think that's right. Um, the system had been in place for, I think, at least a decade at that point. So they were catching up with themselves, in other words? Indeed. OK, so that's the financial um, cap. What about um, the sort of complainants who are eligible to bring complaints in respect of pre-1st of April 2019 acts and emissions? 
So eligible complainants there included um, consumers, unsurprisingly, micro-enterprises, which are defined as having less than 10 employees and either turnover or a balance sheet not exceeding €2 million, charities with an annual income of less than a million pounds, trusts with an asset value of less than a million pounds, and also some uh, consumer buy-to-let consumers. Okay, Um, let's move on to post 1st of April 2019 acts and emissions. So in other words, things that are now happening or or not happening that should be uh, happening or shouldn't be happening, as the case may be. Um, what is the... First of all, what about the financial limit for complaints for, for, for new acts and emissions? So that's gone up to £350,000. So that's a more than doubling of the uh, prior limits. Uh, and... Indeed, both the £160,000 limit and the £350,000 limit will in the future rise in line with the Consumer Prices Index each year uh, from April 2020 onwards, although they'll round down each rise to the nearest um, £5,000. And, and I should say that the, the it seems like a massive leap, but that uh, move to a £350,000 limit comes out of the FCA consultation, which identified that actually... Um, for small businesses, uh, many awards of even up to, say, £900,000 were being made, although only the first £150,000 of that was compulsory. And they identified a mean average uh, award in those cases involving small businesses of over £300,000. So that's where they got that £350,000 figure from. What about the class of eligible complainants that can now bring awards, how has that changed for um, new accident emissions? So in some ways, that's the more significant change here, is, and you'll go on to discuss the, the practical implications of that in a minute, I know. Um, still consumers, obviously still eligible, and micro-enterprises. Charities and trusts are still eligible, but the size of those charities and trusts has increased substantially. So it's now charities with an annual income of less than £6.5 million, which is as against the £1 million uh, previous threshold, and trusts with a net asset value of less than £5 million, again, as against a previous value of £1 million. Those consumer buy-select consumers are still eligible, but the really big changes relate to small and medium-sized enterprises. SMEs, you mean? Uh, that is the acronym that everyone uses, yes. So annual turnover is now the key criterion. You'll remember that I mentioned that it was employees, number of employees was the initial criterion previously, had to be less than 10, uh, and that turnover or balance sheet were then alternative criteria after that. Now, the key criterion is turnover. That needs to be an annual turnover of less than £6.5 million. So that's a very significant increase. So remind us, it was previously, it was... Uh, Two million euros. Two million euros, so... Um, so a very big increase there. And in a way, an even bigger increase is the other new alternative criteria um, in terms of the employees, at least. So it's now less than 50 employees as opposed to less than 10 uh, or less than £5 million on their balance sheet. Again, that was €2 million Euros previously. So there are, there's one uh, compulsory criterion, the turnover, £6.5 million, and then two alternate additional criteria which are the 50 employees or less than £5 million on the balance sheet. And it's also worth noting that there's another new class of eligible complainant, which is individual guarantors or providers of security for uh, micro-enterprises and indeed SMEs themselves. 
So that's obviously a substantial change. Um, I think I th now you're going to tell us about what you see as the, the practical impact of those yeah. changes, aren't you? That's right. Um, but before I do that, before I talk about the practical impact, what I want to just touch on is the FCA's rationale for bringing in these changes. Um, because on any view, they are, um, well, they're substantial, but also potentially quite controversial. What was the, uh, what was the key uh, finding of the SCA and their rationale for well, these why, changes? Why don't I quote from their October 2018 policy statement, which you mentioned before. They said that many SMEs are likely to struggle to resolve disputes with firms as they do not have the necessary financial management and legal resources. These SMEs may therefore be unable to pursue redress when firms have treated them poorly. So that was the, the headline point. In other words, the FCA thought that SMEs were simply ill-equipped to um, writing their, their perceived legal wrongs in the courts and that it was necessary to enable them to pursue redress through a more informal and easier approach. Uh, uh, root, i.e., the FOSS. Well, that, that's um, that's certainly something that SMEs themselves have regularly been saying. Were there any other key points the FCA made um, in the policy statement as part of the? Yeah, rationale? there were there were other reasons the FCA gave. So, for example, um, they suggested that um, if uh, SMEs know that they are in theory, sorry, if SMEs know that they in theory have the ability to bring a complaint to the FOSS they're more likely to deal with um, unfamiliar firms, to use the FCA's language. And the FCA thought that that can only be good for competition because it will mean new entrants to the financial services market. I mean, for, nine, for my part, um, I'm not entirely convinced with that reasoning. I don't think it's realistic to suppose that small businesses would previously have been put off from dealing with um, untested, unfamiliar firms simply because... Um, they felt uh, exposed at not being able to bring a complaint to the FOS. I'm not convinced that would have been on their radar. And it could equally be said that it's more likely to be a larger, more well-established firm that provokes complaints, uh, given the volume of business handled. Presumably, um, the consultation listed some responses that weren't entirely in favour of these sorts of changes, did it? That's right. Um, so, for example, um, concern was raised that firms, financial firms would perceive there to be a greater risk of doing business with SMEs if the FOSS had jurisdiction over their relationship. That in turn, that concern would lead to the increase in prices or perhaps the firm even withdrawing from the SME market. So, Whereas previously they would do business with SMEs, SMEs, they're now saying, no, we're not going to do business with you because it's simply too risky. What about, Tom, that point that um, the FCA focused on about whether or not SMEs actually have the resources to deal with disputes um, through normal channels like the courts? I mean, this is a fairly um, philosophical or political point because the response given was that SMEs should be equipped to deal with disputes through the normal channels, i.e. the courts. They could obtain legal expenses insurance, um, and they should have they should put aside budget or resources to deal uh, with bringing uh, legal complaints um, they they 're big enough to do so they 're not consumers. Um, the point was also made, um, and this is in particular in relation to um, disputes with insurers that SMEs um, under the Insurance Act two thousand fifteen have far greater rights than previously they had, and it isn 't necessary to give them the additional 
um, benefit of being able to bring a complaint to the FOS. And finally, in some cases, it was pointed out that the SME, um, under the new definition, or under, sorry, now as an eligible complainant, might well be bigger than the respondent firm against whom a complaint is being brought. And so there isn't this inequality of bargaining power that might otherwise be thought to justify giving the FOSS jurisdiction. Did the FCA accept um, those points? I'm assuming not, given the rules that they've implemented. Well, yeah, in, in a sense, the answer must be no, because the rules are coming into place, although I'm sure the FCA um, thought the complaints had um, some validity, but not enough to change its mind. And the point it made was that um, the empirical evidence that it had showed, rightly or wrongly, that SMEs were typically unequipped to handle disputes in the courts, and also highlighted that regardless of the relative size of the SME and the respondent firm, it is the respondent firm, the regulated firm, not the SME, who will have the relevant financial services expertise and therefore will be better equipped to deal with um, a, a dispute or a complaint arising out of the, uh, the firm's conduct. So um, how many uh, SMEs will now be eligible under the new rules, does the FCA think? Well, um, the FCA's figure um, that is being fairly widely quoted is 210,000. I must confess I don't know how they've managed to gather that data, but no doubt um, uh, the the data is out there. Um, And that is, on any view, a substantial number, 210,000 SMEs. What sort of powerhouse team of new uh, adjudicators or ombudsmen have they assembled to deal with all of these new complainants? Well, um, apparently the FOS currently plans to recruit a team of 20. So that's one per 1,000 roughly. Um, Sorry, one per 10,000, let's get my maths right, uh, of the SMEs uh, to deal with um, potential complaints. Um, time will tell whether 20 people is enough to deal with 210,000 potential new complainants. And what about looking at some of the sorts of business that might now be eligible as an SME under the uh, altered FOS rules? Well, the the rules obviously don't um, specify um, new categories of business that's um, becoming eligible, but simply by virtue of the um, financial limits, what we're likely to see are businesses such as firms of solicitors, accountancies, surveyors, um, firms of architects, building contractors, estate agents, small manufacturers, um, pubs, restaurants, small hotels, care homes, even car dealerships, when we could go on. But these are all the sorts of business that typically are unlikely to be micro-enterprises because there is a, a minimum uh, amount of resource that would need to be in place to run a business of those types, um, but obviously um, will fall Ill, likely fall within the definition of SME. Um, obviously, some could be above it, but you know there are going to be a large number of new businesses that uh, are, are able to go to the FOSS that couldn't previously, including, by the sounds of it, some fairly sophisticated uh, businesses like solicitors and accountants, of course. Indeed. Um, so, what about the uh, practical impacts as you see them of the change in the limits, uh, the award limits, from 150000 to £350,000? Well, the obvious fact, uh, of course, is that this change more than doubles the amount of redress that can be paid. But I think there's a more subtle point to be made. Um, 
for many claims, the maximum redress of 150,000 or 160,000 as, as it now is um, would have meant that it simply wasn't cost effective on a risk reward basis uh, to bring a complaint. Um, so, for example, uh, assume that you have a claim with a 50 50 prospect of success. Let's assume you're going to spend 50, maybe 75,000 pounds on legal costs to bring that com- bring that claim. Previously, when um, you say that, that's a, to bring the claim through FOS. Sorry. Well, either way, let's assume that that's what okay. it costs to pay a solicitor, um, a firm of solicitors, to bring your claim. Uh, and, well, sorry. As you're right, let's uh, bring a claim to the FOS. If they're only, if the claimant is only going to get a maximum of £150,000 as a result of spending £75,000, I think a firm, a business is going to think twice before rolling the dice and bringing the claim. But if they can get £350,000 while still spending the fifty or £75,000 in legal costs, I think the decision might become easier for the business and they're more likely to decide to proceed. So I think that the balance may well be tipped as a result of the increase to £350,000 for many cases in favour of it becoming proportionate to bring the claim. And that's even if legal costs, as you've said earlier, are not usually recoverable. Yeah, I asked about whether we're talking about claims to FOS or in court because presumably it's cheaper, um, that's certainly my understanding, uh, to bring a claim or a complaint to the FOS than it would be to go through all the hoops that one has to jump through in court litigation like cost budgeting, disclosure and so on. And of course having what is usually a substantial final hearing which may not happen um, in a FOS forum. So would you agree with that, that um, costs tend to be lower anyway in the FOS jurisdiction? That must be right. Um, There's also the issue fee which uh, for now be as high as £10,000. I, I mean, they're way, not every case is as expensive as the other, but generally speaking, it'll be cheaper to pay a solicitor to bring a claim uh, or complaint, I should say, in the FOSS than it would be to bring an equivalent claim uh, in the county court or the high court. So given that, and that FOSS is supposed to be a sort of litigant-in-person-friendly uh, litigant forum, do you think these changes are actually bad news for us litigation lawyers? Well, the, the superficial answer is going to be yes, because... By definition, if a forum is litigant in person friendly, then you're going to have fewer lawyers asked to help out. But anecdotal evidence um, from a number of solicitors that we've spoken to suggests that small businesses are put off bringing claims against financial services firms because of the costs involved. And in coupled uh, to that, coupled with that, is the adverse cost risk and the cost of um, paying for ATE insurance after the event insurance against the risk of having to pay the other side's costs. But now costs are likely to be lower, uh, and that's not only your the own your own solicitor's cost, but perhaps more importantly, there is now going to be a very low risk, if any, of having to pay the firm's costs in the event that you, you that you lose. Well, that being the case, it seems to us seems to, sorry, it seems to me I should say that there is surely a market out there amongst the two hundred and ten thousand eligible SMEs who want legal assistance with bringing an FOS complaint but who would not have had the stomach to commence court proceedings. And who knows, perhaps we'll see firms of solicitors advertising their specialist expertise in bringing FOSS complaints on behalf of of SMEs. Maybe Maybe a boutique industry will arise out of this. Okay. What about solicitors acting for the respondents, though, who might have been uh, representing them in a court case, for example? Well, 
more claims means more work for defendant lawyers, I think, is, stands to reason. So it may well be that if, if we're right in predicting um, the possibility of a large number of SME complaints being brought, well, that's going to lead for more, to more work for defendant lawyers. But with irrecoverable costs, so perhaps putting some pressure on their fees or further pressure on their fees in that regard. And also, I think there may well be a knock-on effect for insurance premiums uh, for defendants' firms' professional indemnity policies because um, insurers, it's fair to say, do not find the FOSS an easy um, or a FOSS complaint being upheld being an easy risk to insure against. Um, And that, I think, may well be reflected in increased premiums. Sure. Talking about insurance, um, there are several areas, aren't there, where the FOS might be asked to deal with um, products uh, and indeed areas of law that it's not used to. Um, yeah, I can think you this is, tell me something about that? I think this is an important point because, generally speaking, um, under the old rules, it would only have been consumer, consumer insurance policies that would um, have been complained about before the the FOSS. So we're talking household insurance, motor insurance, life insurance. Obviously, these can be, relatively speaking, complex policies that raise complex issues. Um, But what we didn't see, and what we will now see, uh, at least potentially, are complaints arising out of, for example, commercial combined policies or business interruption policies. And anyone uh, who's listening who's, uh, who deals with insurance litigation, anyone who's dealt with a delay in startup or business interruption insurance dispute, well, they will know how com- complex disputes of, of that nature can be, both factually and legally. They involve rafts of expert evidence. We've got delay experts, forensic accountancy experts, all of whom disagree about whether a company's downturn in business was due to the, um, for example, a fire taking place at a factory or whether the downturn was for an unconnected reason, i.e. just because the company wasn't doing so well. Those are very difficult issues to resolve. In such disputes, there is frequently an issue with underinsurance. So if a company um, understates its profitability when taking out the insurance, that will mean it pays a lower premium than it should have done. But the effect of that is that under the insurance policy, when it, if and when it makes a claim, the insurer will be entitled to reduce its payout in the same proportion to the extent to which uh, its premium was was too low. So if it paid £10,000 rather than £20 for its, uh, £20,000 for its premium, its payout will be halved to what it compared to what the actual loss was. That can be a cause of significant um, uh, litigation. And it will be interesting to see how the FOSS handles disputes of that nature, which technically, legally and factually, can be far more complex than I suspect what it's currently used to. And of course, um, those legal complexities don't necessarily have to be taken into account by the FOS, do they? As we were talking about earlier, under the DISP rules and the FCA handbook, they've got a duty to take uh, the law into account, but they don't strictly have to follow it. And I think you mentioned the test of them deciding what in their opinion is fair and reasonable in all the circumstances so that could be a very different thing from the outcome uh, in court couldn't it it, it could be and it, I mean, it's an in, it raises a really interesting and and something of a hot topic really because i mean it's one thing to decide a consumer complaint um arising out of a pension for example 
and an ombudsman saying, well, even if the law strictly would cause this result, which means the consumer loses, the consumer's been treated so badly that it would be, wouldn't be fair or reasonable to deprive them of redress. That's one thing. But to say in the context of, let's say, a commercial insurance dispute, such as I've been um, talking about just now, to say, well, we agree with um, what, what the firm says, what the insurance company says about underinsurance, but we don't think it would be fair to deprive this SME of its £350,000 payout and halve that because it understated its profits by 50% and therefore we're going to give it the full amount. If, for example, that's what an ombudsman said, then the only way in which the insurance company could challenge that would be by um, by way of a judicial review. It would have to go to the High Court, to, to the Administrative Court, and say that the ombudsman has acted irrationally in forming that opinion as to what is fair and reasonable. Well, I think it's right, isn't it, that um, Mr Justice Jay, for example, in a recent, uh, actually a pensions case of Eva Life and Pensions and FOS, um, expressed his concerns about um, the difference between the tests applied by the ombudsman uh, and the court. That, that is right. I mean, that that's a very interesting case for what Mr Justice Jay said about that. Um, and it does raise a, a fairly fundamental um, question about the appropriateness of allowing a complaint, a dispute, a legal dispute to be resolved by reference to what is fair or reasonable, even if the law or the common law would um, decide that dispute differently. Um, and it, it does seem fundamentally um, odd, you might think, that a case would be decided or could potentially be decided differently based upon whether it was taken to court or whether it was taken to the FOSS. And even if that uh, divergence, even the, the risk of inconsistent findings, could be justified by virtue of the fact that the complainant is a consumer and different considerations may apply, it may be thought harder to justify it where the complainant is an SME that may be three times the size of the respondent. Um, and it's in, it will be interesting to see if that point is reflected in a change in approach that the administrative court takes to deciding judicial reviews and uh, in challenges to FOS ombudsman decisions. I think that the point you just made is magnified further by uh, the other recent development that I was going to talk about. Um, so that's something that comes from a body called... Uh, UK Finance. Tell us more. I will. Um, so UK Finance is a, a finance industry uh, representative body. So it mainly comprises um, a board with representatives from banks, lenders, um, payment clearance system providers, other financial services providers, and one consumer group for good measure. It doesn't actually involve any insurers. Um, so it's it's a banking, lending, payment services um representative body and in march 2018 they commissioned a report um, from simon walker cbe who's the former director general of the institute of uh, directors which he published uh, in october 2018 coincidentally around the same time as the fca's policy statement we were discussing earlier and uh, what did he recommend in his report so this was in response to um in part the all-party parliamentary group on fair business banking's push to try and get um 
even bigger SMEs than those that are now eligible under the changed FOS rules um, redress in, in the kind of cases we've been talking about. Um, again, resulting from that uh, discontent that I talked about earlier that has been expressed by the business community since the financial crash. The APPG would actually like something like a financial services tribunal to be set up or possibly arbitration rather than a further ombudsman scheme. But what the report actually recommended was the creation of another layer of FOS-like ombudsman scheme above the uh, the new limits uh, for businesses with a turnover of between six and a half million pounds and ten million pounds, and with an increased award limit of six hundred thousand um, pounds. Partly because of the point that I made earlier about the size of voluntary awards that are being made, uh, even to smaller businesses by FOS, but also because Simon Walker thought that the um, Australian FOS limit, which is equivalent to six hundred thousand pounds, was a fairer limit. Am I right in thinking that? this would be a voluntary scheme? Uh, It would, but it seems the banks are committed to it uh, and it seems likely to happen. It's still in development, so we've got to watch this space, really. Um, One other point I should mention is the point that we were discussing about the technical difficulties, the legal complexity of some of these cases, they've sought to answer by also having a parallel advisory body um, that would help this new quasi-FOS organisation with such matters, which would be chaired by a retired judge. So they are alive to the the technical difficulties that some of these claims present. But as I say, we'll just have to see how that develops. It's in development at at the moment. So watch this space, in other words. Indeed. That concludes um, this Hardwick podcast uh, on the topic of recent changes uh, to the FOS and related developments. Uh, We hope you found it interesting and useful. You might like to subscribe to our podcast series by way of Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or indeed whatever podcast medium you use. You can also find out more information on the Hardwick website at www.hardwick.co.uk. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Hardwick is a barrister's chambers which specialises in legal advice and advocacy in the areas of clinical negligence and personal injury, commercial dispute resolution, construction, insolvency, insurance, private client, professional liability and property. This podcast is provided free of charge for information purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and should not be relied on as such. No responsibility for the accuracy and or correctness of the information and commentary or any consequences of relying on it, is assumed or accepted by any member of Hardwick or by Hardwick as a whole.